0: You want to wrap the intro? Oh. You could wrap the put your the on. Oh, stop stop tweeting. I'm like, tweeting. I'm, I'm
1: doing He's got tweet. on social media. This is what happens when you interview two co-founders who happen to be brothers.
0: Michael Felix, CTO, slope.io. Okay. Rust Felix, CEO, slope.io.
1: <laughs> and this is what happens when your podcast equipment is messed up and you have a CTO who happens to be right next to you.
2: Yeah, just put a bicycle helmet on it and that would Oh yeah, that. Ability.
1: Honestly, engineering. Look at that CTO. And this is another episode of Dynamo Discussions. Why would you start a company with your brother? Let's start there.
0: <laughs> I, I think... We've known each... We've always been really close, but starting a business together was a great opportunity for us to get even closer and really challenge our relationship just beyond being a brother. I mean, um, and in the beginning, there were a lot of harebrained business schemes that we had where he and I would fight, and that's all that we would do is just fight, kick, and scream. And we went through those processes, and, like, we're a team now. We're We're a single brain. We share blood, like... I mean, that kind of, sounds kind of gross. No,
2: I mean, it's it's true. You know, the big thing for me is trust. I trust Michael implicitly, explicitly. Any decision he makes, I don't have to question, is this the right thing for us? I know that he's always coming from the standpoint of what's best. It might be a, a different perspective. But, you know, he's family.
1: He's not going to screw you over. No, he's not going to screw me over. Right.
2: Because he's my little brother and I, he's I'll make my him big pay brother. for it. So, we still wrestle.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, so what is your company? Like, what do you do?
2: Our our company is Slope.io, and we provide clinical trial logistics services that improve researcher-patient interaction. We remove a lot of the complication and provide clarity to the expense portion of consumable medical supplies that are used in clinical trials.
1: So for people who aren't familiar with that industry... What is, what is the problem you're solving? Like, what sucks about the way other people do it? And uh, what do you do better?
2: Right now, clinical trials are kind of messy. Um, it's, it's leading, cutting-edge science that's led by scientists. Scientists are wonderful researchers. They're terrible logisticians. And if you've got a bunch of patients that are distributed across a network of clinical research sites... You know, right now we're working with MD Anderson, the Mayo Clinic, and, you know, 88 other sites, and you've got all these patients, and these patients have visits, and every visit has a particular care protocol, and that care protocol has particular supply requirements. It's a mess. Yeah. And what we do is we provide clarity, and we provide accuracy and accountability. You know, we make sure that every patient in the trial, regardless of where they are, receive the correct supplies necessary to give them the care that they need at that time point on the clinical trial.
1: How do you do that?
2: Uh, Well, actually, it's magic. Oh, It's logistics Mm. magic.
0: Well, uh, a lot of it extended from some software that we've been working on for the past couple years to solve e-commerce problems, Uh, doing a lot of forecasting, purchase forecasting. And it's really just taking inspiration from that and solving the problem with uh, great software, but also a service layer that fills in and helps people understand um, exactly what they need at which time.
1: So, how did you get involved in the clinical research space?
2: That's an excellent question. Thank you. Um, you know, my background is mathematics and mechanical engineering. Michael was a you know brilliant professor at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and. You know, we have no background in healthcare beyond, like, Band-Aids and mm-hmm. aspirin. Um, <laughs> so my wife is the CAO at Cancer Insight, which is a, a company that does cancer immunotherapy clinical trials. Um, they had a problem. Their supply costs were out of control. They were acting in a very reactionary way to site and patient demand, and their costs were escalating, and they just... They didn't even know what they didn't even know from a, a mm-hmm. logistic standpoint, and my wife brilliantly said, "Hey, you know, you guys are doing very complicated things and providing very high levels of customer service in a very demanding environment. Do you think you could do this with with clinical research supplies?" That's really how the conversation started, and that was December of
0: last year.
1: Uh, why is it called Slope?
0: Uh, Slope was a name that we've had for a while. And I think it sort of came out of necessity because we get, we get stuck in these naming things whenever we come up with a new system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since then, we've decided that, uh, that Slope was, it, it fit well enough for what we're doing, mm-hmm. um, and it was already good to go, and so we just, we just sort of went with it.
2: Yeah, you know, the thing I like about Slope is it implies velocity, and it implies movement, and what we do is provide velocity and, and movement for clinical trials but in a, in, a, in a way that makes things clear and simple.
1: So you um, you were a, a professor yep. at SCAD, mm-hmm. right? Correct? Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you taught and just your background?
0: So I taught mainly industrial design, interaction design, and some service design. Interaction design was my specialty that, that I taught there. And that was a really, really awesome opportunity to... Um, they say you don't really understand something until you actually teach it. And I think the first year you can talk to a lot of my students I probably learned more than they did but I I realized a couple months in that I was in control of the class and that if people weren't having fun that was my fault and so I made my classes really fun we had snack time where people would bring in snacks um, and we got we looked at it as a design problem it's like Mm -hmm. you know people need to eat how can you make a really portable snack and that sort of blew up Um, and so I was known as the snack time professor for a while so there's lots of really good food, and we had international students. So there's all sorts of things that we get to explore. Um, but it was really about having fun and learning and creating an environment where learning can happen. And I've been able to apply a lot of that towards uh, Slope and working with Rust um, in creating teams that uh, that the culture is awesome and people want to be there. Because um, you know, one from one framework, this is a boring problem. But from the way we're looking at it, this is like the coolest problem. And like we're changing like we're changing a really broken system and helping people survive and have like another opportunity to live and when you look at it that way that's like that's huge so a lot of it's just the perspective that you take
3: so i i guess thinking about the solution that you guys have put together a big um competitive advantage but you know really your value proposition is you've looked through this lens of user experience Mm -hmm. you've taught service design you've brought that in and how is that kind of really changing the way logistics actually works because I feel when I look at the way logistics is done today it's very poorly designed it's not around the experience of the shipper how did you guys even rethink all that was there a lot of customer discovery was your wife super helpful for us You know, I think the thing that was really
2: You should
0: say first that your wife was helpful. (laughs) Yes,
3: first
2: of all, my wife is Mm. extremely helpful. All right, good. Um, Thank God we're not healthcare people. Mm. That's number one. We are outsiders that had no situational awareness of anything in the healthcare space going into this. We were the guys that we have to get thousands of SKUs a week to customers... Make sure they're happy. Make sure they're getting the right thing. So we approach this from the standpoint of the customer. And for what we do, the people that pay us, we don't look at those people as our customers. The customers are the research sites, the, the boots on the ground, the people that are doing the clinical research. We want to make the experience of opening one of our kits just wonderful for them. You know, when sites get our our kits, it's a gift that makes their job easier. They look forward to it. We designed the entire experience around making it fun to get medical supply kits.
3: Yep. Um, I guess also for our listeners, so they get a better understanding, the CRO pays you, but the ultimate beneficiary are the testing sites and those people that are volunteered for clinical Correct. trials. Yeah,
0: right. and that's, that's the part that none of these other companies really think about. Uh, like, all of our competitors just want to send a pallet of inventory to an address. And yeah. we want to send the specific inventory to Jenna or, you know, Stephen or whomever we know at that site because we develop those relationships.
1: I want to go back to the fact that you are founders and brothers, which if I think about starting a company with my brother, it would never work because we're too similar. Can you talk a little bit about your dynamic?
2: So uh, Myers-Briggs style, bringing out the pop psychology here. Um, I am an ESTJ. I'm an INFP, which (laughs) is the yin and yang. Uh, We're literally on opposite ends of every spectrum, Um, You know, my background was in mission critical data center cells, you know, technically very demanding. You have to be able to talk to a lot of people. You know, I like meeting people, talking to people, developing relationships, forging experiences. Michael likes sitting in a closet and solving (laughs) very hard problems quietly. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, he's like his emotional IQ is through the roof, Um, you know. I can kind of be a little bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes. And so we get this beautiful balance between us, you know, based in brotherhood and trust and family and the things that I'm terrible at, and I'm terrible at a lot of things, he's really, really good at and vice versa.
3: So I guess playing off of that, when you guys started constructing the solution, how did that come to be? You have somebody who's very in tune with, the way humans behave, interact with their surroundings. You are somebody who also understands it from a different perspective. But the one thing, Russ, the last four weeks is you also think in processes as well. So how did that even happen? Where did the magic occur?
0: I think part of it is the, the sense that I'm, I'm a designer first and a programmer second. And everything that I do starts with, you know, what's the, what's the user experience around it? What's the service experience around it? And then sort of building into what are the processes that I need to facilitate that user experience? And that's, that's at the overlap that Russ picks up on. Russ is the model builder and the, the process automator but he can't. He doesn't even know what, what ruby is on a he doesn't. He can't put a ruby on a rail. I think a ruby on rails make a beautiful necklace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. That's
2: my knowledge level. T- totally. Yeah. <laughs> but th- like
0: that. That's the middle ground that we work in. And I think we have a you know a design centric culture where we prototype the hell out of everything. We just test the hell out of it, and it's all about learning. And you know, there's there's a part in the process where you start to see the holistic picture of it, but you got to prototype it first
3: indulge me here um prototyping is a very important part of the product development process but when you guys provide a service that's driven by technology such as slope how should founders be thinking about prototyping because that might be completely unfound on some of these folks
0: yeah try to do it without spending any money or writing any code there are so many services out there like Zapier is amazing. You can integrate you know, Google spreadsheets with MailChimp. And you don't have to write a line of code, and it's free. And just find solutions like that. Be really bold. And there's a great technique called the Wizard of Oz technique, mm-hmm. where on the front end to the, to the user, it looks completely real. It looks like a real service or a product. But on the back end, you've got like, a group of people just scrambling around, like, connecting all the buttons and the dots. It's like you can get people to play computer. Like you can get people to do manual data crunching and then just email a result back to somebody and they think it came from a computer. So a lot of it is just thinking smart and like working really smart and not hard. That's like a big, a big ethos that we have. You know, a big Mm -hmm.
2: theme that we have is iteration. We're constantly iterating everything. We don't, we rarely make huge monumental jumps in what we do. Everything is just tweaked and split tested and tweaked again, you know, For example, the kits that we've been sending out. Um, We've been sending, what, we're like 1,200 kits right now. We've sent in just a couple months. And the evolution of those kits and the service level has been informed directly by the research sites. And we're able to make changes in a day or two because we've built this culture of just testing, quick iteration, change, and adaptation as opposed to just. Just everything moving so slow. And that's not sure. just
0: us. That's our, that's our warehouse staff as well. Like, we got this guy, Isaiah, who just can see everything and can make suggestions. And we encourage that. And we're trying to make sure that everybody in our organization under, understands that that's, that's encouraged and almost sort of required.
3: A lot of what I feel I see in my seat looking across the supply chain are vertically focused supply chains, and there are a couple teams this summer you guys are one of them that are exhibiting that what are your thoughts around that you're in the healthcare space you're really specializing and owning that niche do you think that's a part of being experienced focused is that a competitive advantage when you go out and you sell against maybe a generalist player what are your thoughts
2: i think focus is key um You know, there's some people that can multitask. We've got the benefit of running a large business for the past couple of years and seeing what happens when you try to maybe take on too much. Mm. You know, we want to get into this space, do this one particular thing that a lot of people look at as boring really, really well. This is the only thing that we're focusing on. You know, there's a lot of places that we can go once we get some traction, and those are very interesting and exciting, but we've learned the value of laser focus on a problem. You know, we've got, we've got one particular focus, and that's making sure that every clinical research site in the country that's using our service is blown away
0: by what we're doing.
1: What advice do you have for other founders?
0: Uh, don't forget to realize that uh, outside of the business you're a person as well and that if you take if you just pour all of yourself into something without actually thinking about um, your own mental or physical health um, it's not going to go well for you or your relationships and um, just think about the whole system you know you're you're a person trying to solve a problem but you can't solve that problem if you're not adequately prepared. Um, You know, I meditate a lot. I know Russ meditates and like we, we do, we sort of lean on each other to make sure that we're both doing all right. And we're sort of keeping track of that. I think
2: it's absolutely essential to have something outside of your like job passion that you care about and you pour yourself into. Um, you know, Michael is a brilliant electronic musician. I'm just going to do a plug owner operator. It's amazing. You know my passion is painting, and I have some of my best insights for my business when I'm completely unplugged painting. And that took us years to understand because we just used to drive ourselves to the point of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. and you have to have something that clears your mind and you know actively engages parts of your body that you don't normally use. you know, I sit in front of a computer and the phone. And so using your hands and, you know, unplugging your brain, that's tremendously important.
3: My one last question. You have listeners that will say, how could we be of help, potentially? There's something our listeners could help you with. What would that be?
0: We are really interested in understanding the full system of clinical research. And a lot of that requires not just, you know, first of all, if you know somebody who works at a clinical research organization, we would love to talk to you. Um, just to understand your challenges. If you've been through a clinical trial, we would love to talk to you and understand what your experiences are. If you're a research nurse, or if you know anybody involved at that level, we'd love to talk to you. If you're at a pharmaceutical company, we want to understand your perspective. So any players in this space in clinical research or any, any experiences that you've had, we're, we are a sponge. We want to learn as much as we possibly can.
1: Awesome, all right. Thank you so much. Lots Thanks, of good stuff guys. here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Get back to work. All right. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Taking us out is Michael Felix, who you just heard from, and his song Vessel. We are going to put a link in the description so that you can learn more and find out more about the really badass music that he's making. Check us out on Instagram at this is Dynamo, where we're gonna be sharing pictures of Russ's artwork. It's beautiful. All right, thanks. Yeah.